0: Welcome to Emotion Coaching Unscripted, Unfiltered. My name is Matthias Behrens. Today's reaction is about an article I read on the Al Jazeera English website. The title is Beirut Explosion Survivors Recount the Moment Disaster Struck. Well, my first reaction to this headline was, please don't. And um, this brings me back to a topic I've spoken about a couple of times, but let me just tell you a few points here. Talking about the actual traumatic moment, or potential potentially traumatic moment, and I think we can all agree that that experience that people have made in that situation, like, I mean, we all saw the pictures and even the video clips. I mean, I mean this is you know, potentially traumatic uh, on every scale. Now, uh, from my perspective as uh, knowing how trauma works and, you know, having experience with these kind of things and especially with how to resolve a trauma, this is never a good thing. And I know that this is a bit counterintuitive because we do have that... um, notion and opinion on one hand that people say well but you know you have to talk about things and especially if when something is a taboo it, it is a great step forward to come out of the silence to break the silence and to make your voice heard and to make your story heard and i mean um When I say this, make your voice heard, make your story heard, I mean, this this sounds like a slogan because it is a slogan, but we have to dissect a bit when is that appropriate and when not. Of course, if there is um, a situation where people are oppressed or nobody cares about someone's uh, experiences and fate, um, or especially when it comes to... um, Uh, sexual harassment, sexual abuse, and all these kinds of, of course, these matters were for millennia, centuries, and decades put under the carpet. And this is, of course, not where they belong. I mean, this is, of course, out of question. But the uh, disconnect for a moment from, from that, what I just described, and uh, look at it in the following way one individual you know if you if you look at it from the individual perspective and that individual is telling a bad story about a specific traumatic event and also gets in the related emotions and that is the important thing you know if somebody just you know, tells a story. We we might say, "Hmm, okay." You know, well, You know, why? Why is Matthias saying that that's not a good thing? I mean, um, the point is, re-traumatization in the worst case, or it's just a waste of time in the best case. Let me elaborate. The worst thing that can happen, and I know that that is not so frequent. It does happen, but it's not the most frequent case. I mean, I'm going through the article um, and, uh, of course, I'm re- reading the counts of, of, of these uh, four, five, six uh, uh, people who share their experiences and uh, I mean, the way they describe it, um, they um, some of them contain passages where I could assume, okay, they really got into an emotion, but but not all of them. So the point is if somebody tells a traumatic experience and they do get in the related emotion of helplessness, fear of death, fear for others, pain, that is never a good thing. You cannot make the argument that, oh yeah, well you know, but I talked about it. Isn't that great? Um, no. Uh, when it comes to emotional work, the the fact that you have talked about it is very often not worth much. From this, we we, we have this experience. uh, You know, people say, "Um, you know, I've talked about this so many times and I'm tired of it. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Because in the end, the talking about it doesn't do the work of actually changing your experience and making things better it really doesn't yes you might need to communicate a narrative for certain reasons be it emotional work yes but it's not the core of emotional work to communicate your story it's like a necessary a necessary step but it's it's not at the heart of it You know, once you learn different methods, which are not just talking and analyzing and trying to break stuff down and, ah, could you maybe see it this way? Could you maybe see it that way? Which does not work. You know, once you have disconnected from that and you have other methods, the actual story will get less and less interesting. The... The excitement about what what precisely happens, that's really not it. Um, It comes to a point that when you uh, use the methods that I advocate, that you just want to know as little as necessary just to be able to do the work and to, to guide the person through a process, but you do not need to know all the details. You just need to know the very few date details, which might be very important for the person to get through that. And I know this is such a, a you know, such a strange thing for me to say, probably, if you hear that, because you uh, live in a world where, you know, ah, oh, yeah, we have to talk, you know, talk about our stories and make our voice heard. And Again, I do not want to put that down if, if we want to bring along societal change and uh, um, uh, end up, uh, um, you know, silence about certain matters. Yeah, yeah, I get it. But still, those people who are on the stages or who put, who put themselves in the spotlight and they make themselves vulnerable by sharing their stories publicly, you know what they're getting in the end? They're getting attention. Maybe that has some effect in society. I get that. But for them, personally, individually, there is not much coming out of this. They won't feel different, really. Yes, it would be even worse if you are in that emotional state that you that you have as a result of what you had to go through. Plus, society doesn't care. Yes, I, I, I agree. But just because people care sometimes yes it might have it might play some role in the bigger picture of is the world recognizing my pain yeah i get that but i have to tell you this is not really making the difference for people it really doesn't just to make your voice heard you're still traumatized or you know to put it in other words you know if you have been raped and then you can talk about that. You are then a rape survivor who has talked about their story. And I'm not saying that, is, that that wouldn't be important, but it's more important for society rather than probably for yourself. Somebody who has raped, you know, having to tell their story is a terrible experience they have to go through. It's an ordeal to do that in court. I mean, rape victims usually don't say, oh, I'm so happy there is the, the court hearing coming up so I can sit in the court and tell my story to everyone. Isn't that great? You know, that doesn't happen. Isn't isn't that a little bit in conflict with this notion that we have that, you know, you tell your story and that isn't that fantastic? No, it is not. It really is not. So I would like to shift the focus a bit away from the stories, which um, I might even say, you know, is it is it even necessary? I mean, can not we, from seeing the pictures, kind of extrapolate that, okay, this is now like a million set stories there? And it has another effect. And I know I'm jumping here, but this is why it's called unfiltered, unscripted, right? I can say whatever I want. <laughs> the, the other point is that it has an effect... Which is very little talked about. I have actually never heard anyone really say it, but society gets tired. And that's dangerous too. If you just say, okay, now everybody tells their story. Okay, now you start. You know, tell your story and um, we'll listen. You know, first of all, everybody, including me, has a limited capacity for what we can pay attention to, what we can digest, especially in a world which gets faster and faster. And, you know, if you made it to, I don't know, minute, what are we, 10 of this talk? I mean, you're already an exception because usually attention spans are just a few seconds. So this is one thing, but it's not just patience and attention. It is also what can people process and listening to stories can result in this eerie feeling of helplessness. Now you listen to the story, oh my God, this and this happened to the person. Oh my God, oh my God, isn't that sad? Isn't that terrible? Inevitably, you end up being like, you know, okay, but you know, now my life has to go on and I can't really do. I can donate, I can here, I can there. And of course, you know, people who want your donations, I mean, they just want to, you know, push the guilt button and you feel a little bit bad about yourself, that you're doing better at Christmas Eve or whatever you're celebrating, and you know so you're like helping out other people at that time of the year um but the point is that we are in such an incredible helplessness when it comes to emotional pain and it shouldn't be like that, and the most tragic thing, the most tragic thing is that it is not necessary. It is unnecessary that we are in this state of incredible helplessness. It just is. Yes, there are things we cannot change. But yes, there are some things we could do if we would just consider emotional and psychological first aid a general skill that everybody would have. And now I'm jumping back to the journalists here because I have something in mind for journalists that I will... ...put into reality as soon as life permits that, which is um, helping correspondents, journalists, uh, filmmakers who do documentaries and so on, whenever they interview people who have, you know, who who are just traumatized... Um, To stabilize them first, you know, emotionally stabilize a person, then you get your story, then you stabilize again, and then you leave the scene, and then you can have the good consciousness of, um, you know, you haven't just taken your story, because I do know that journalists are usually in that conflict of, on the one hand, you have to get the story. On the other hand, um, you see that you're often causing pain in the person when they talk about their experiences. This is just how that goes. And there are ways to make that that transaction better, more constructive. And I know it weighs heavy on journalists that they have to do that often. And of course, journalists also numb, not only because of, the the things they go through themselves if they're you know if they're uh in 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 war zones and in crisis regions where you know of course you need journalists and correspondents you know because this is where the news happens right so it's not only because they are affected by that this is also what numbs them is having to continually cause pain by extracting stories right as you know at least the stories you know most of the world should care about. So what can we do? Well it very much depends on, you know, what your role is. Um if you're just uh if you're like most people, you're um you're not working uh, in the in this field, you're 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 just uh someone in not an helping profession, you are just an observer of two things and all this still observe when friends, family, or anybody who talks to you is getting into that into that narrative. I mean, now the point is, what should you do? When I'm saying, okay, it is potentially um, not constructive to be nice, to let somebody tell a story. But then you might say, on the other hand, yeah, but you have um, experience you know, experienced moments where somebody told you their story and they felt so relieved, they could talk to somebody and all that. Uh, You know, how to reconcile these two points of view. And again, I have to tell you, yes, that somebody can interact with you uh, about a story that wasn't about somebody could tell you the story and the details. That was not the relief. I mean, unless it was a narrative where the, the person was, you know, feeling guilt towards you and that the person felt relieved when, you know, that someone said to you, you know what, I did this wrong and I wanted to tell you. And that That's a, a different situation. But let's say you had nothing to do with that story. You know, it's somebody's distressing story. And that person trusts you enough to tell you, you're listening to this. Um it might seem counterintuitive but really what you should do instead is of course not of course not cutting the person short and be like you know don't tell me <laughs> I mean you can if you don't want to hear it of course then you don't do it but let's assume that you want to play some constructive role in that person's life you um, have enough interest in that person to uh, dedicate a moment and take your time so you want to fill this time not just with small talk and nonsense and the usual chit chat and blah blah you actually want to really connect what will be important is not to listen to all the details of a story but to signal that you get that there is something and you get that and that you slow down the person when it comes to the actual distressing parts of the story, when the voice breaks, when the person pauses and halts, when there are no words, when the person is searching for words. Those are typical moments when you make that. And then not focusing on pushing and trying to get out the details that would be something you should do and you would be surprised like i mean you know i'm the founder of emotion coaching you might assume okay you know when i'm with a person you know i oh there are all these stories pouring out of the people and isn't that beautiful no it is not this is not how this work works It's a little bit like you have a person bleeding on the street and you say, okay, now now I'm going to let you bleed out, you know, tell me me everything. It's not what you want to do. You want to close the wound for the moment. It will be looked at with the right situation and the right conditions. But I'll stay with you. And this is what I'm telling you, what you please do. Take the time, take the patience. But, you know, accompany the emotion, yeah? Um... I know when I just talk about this, uh, it might come across abstract. And it is, you know, I mean, I gave these kind of opinions and instructions in seminars a lot. And, you know, people are like, yeah, no, really? (laughs) I mean, I get it. Um, So seeing examples, I think, is uh, crucial. So I hope that in the demonstrations section on, uh, em- on the emotion coaching website, I'll have something. I mean, you you can see on the YouTube channel, you can see uh, demonstrations of like half an hour, 40 minutes of the actual work. But it, I mean, you can extract from that also a lot of information. I am not listening to a lot of story there. I, I don't. And that might surprise you. I mean, I hope it does, because that would mean that you carefully listen to what I'm doing there. But it's just a few minutes of actual storytelling and information. And I call this the emotional narrative. You know, if you know, the moment I saw the first video, I think it you know, was it a Tuesday evening? Uh, forgive me, I don't have the weekday now in my head, but it, it was, I, I saw this um, like 7pm my time and whatever, so it was very short after the event and there we were these short clips when the Beirut bomb uh, uh, sorry, it wasn't a bomb, I mean it was, you know, a lot of material which acted as a bomb like this explosion was in this clip and I, I just saw this go off and just from that image I knew, okay, thats that's now a million people at least who are emotionally very much in trouble, which with with the of course the spectrum of people who do comparatively well after that with you know one third who we, you know who go very likely into um actual you know trauma with post traumatic effects more or less roughly right. So this is a lot of people, and I knew that. And I mean, every human being uh, who has empathy in them can extrapolate, oh, my God, this is houses, this is people's lives, this is people worrying for their loved ones, this is people hurt, this is people angry, that that their helplessness, uh, you know, the state lets them down, uh, you know, it, it, all these emotions. I mean, you know, are you really surprised about this? I mean, um, now, when I hear in the news that, okay, there are no... Now, people are angry. I mean, um, the the, correspondent, the Al Jazeera correspondent I was listening to um, who um, reported f- from the moment of the event and he, who is from the city and, you know, lived there and was in the city uh, by coincidence, uh, it seems, of course, you know, and sayna uh, Hodder, and, uh, you know, she reported and... I think from the next morning, she mentioned people are angry. And I'm like, yeah, of course, you know, the moment you have survived and you have don't have to, you know, worry about your immediate survival. Of course, anger is the adequate emotion to have now. I mean, this <laughs> is, you know, and, but what I'm trying to tell you here is that the the essence of the emotional narrative of a story is that you know you can tell very few things of a storyline and the emotional content of the story should be pretty much clear you know and that's fascinating and this is pretty much universal why do i say pretty much okay you have always some tribe in Papua New Guinea where people feel different about stuff you know I get it anthropologists always emphasize this but for most people uh, you know across cultures all the continents you, you really share that you know you have a story and you can you know you know how people felt i mean this is how, why art works this is why music feels in very similar ways even though of course you know um, more detailed interpretations are are different between people i mean people will feel a different mix of that emotional cocktail you know that is going on now in, in, in beirut for example and in other places in the world like everywhere uh, people make a very similar experience and of course might experience certain degrees of different emotions to a certain degree but the the fundamental mix will be very 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 similar you know pain loss helplessness anger to whatever degree and mix but that's what's that is what unites us is that we that we are vulnerable Pain is a part of our existence. It's part of our humanity. And we can and we must learn to better deal with this. And it does not work in the ways that are being shown to you. And sometimes it drives me mad that the, the, these methods which I would like to divide, I would like to, to divide it in first aid stuff, stuff everybody should know. Everybody should know, and of course, it doesn't make you a psych, you know a psychologist or a therapist or a counselor. Like having done your first aid training doesn't make you a doctor, or a surgeon, or whatever. Of course not. So you can divide the methods in these two domains that. what everybody should know, and then, of course, the the specialties. And then you might think, yeah, but, well, at least the specialists, they do know. Well, I have to disappoint you. They don't. My personal best estimate is that, yeah, well, if we are lucky, one in ten knows what they're doing when it comes to trauma. One in ten. Uh, this is devastating. This is devastating. And I am, you know, I'm German. I, I mean, I have sufficient experience of the the German situation. And, you know, rich country, well-developed uh, healthcare system and so on. And you might assume that there, things are happening for people. And, um, yeah, you have waiting lists and all this. But even if you get in therapy, and, of course, I would always recommend that. You know, I mean, I am not... Advocating not going to therapy, I'm saying you yo, please do. I mean, everybody should go. And you know, for many people, it will be very, very short. But then at least you know, you know, you know, you got nothing to really look at. But most people would <laughs> obviously benefit from it. Um, but I'm always saying when people ask me how much I do, I'm like, a good therapy would help you. <laughs> not just because somebody is a therapist sadly will make him or her an effective therapist and trauma has been neglected in um, you know the the training of psychologists and clinical psychologists counselors for so long that um, yeah now things are getting slowly better, but it takes an eternity. And um, still, I would say best case is one in 10. And I still hear uh, from people who go into therapy and I, I, I hear to, I listen to what they're experiencing and what they tell me. And I'm like, this is embarrassing what happens there. It's just oftentimes wrong and destructive And um, I mean, of course, you know, disclaimer, uh, of course, I'm not talking about everybody. I mean, they're good people. I mean, I, I learned from very good people, I would claim. Effective people, people who got the job done, you know, and I should not have to do that. This is another thing which I was thinking these days. You know what? I shouldn't have to do what I'm doing. You know, it's, you know, we have so many smart professors at the universities and so many smart books have been written. It's all there. It shouldn't have to be me that I'm now going around and telling people, you know what, the Psychological First Aid, this is how it really works. The stuff you're doing is, is just, this is just some woo-ha. It, it, it's, it's, it's nothing. And this endless talking about stuff and not getting stuff done. I mean, watch the demonstrations I'm doing. Um, you know, there. This is the talk. There is the walk. You know, look at it. Another thing that has to be reiterated, that has to be emphasized again. And I know it's a, it's quite a, a mixed speech, but okay. Well, um, it is not so much about the person. Um, it. I think I'm good at what I'm doing, but I think there are. The, it's not about competing there. It's about getting the job done. It's a little bit like the you know the ethos of a firefighter. I, I was listening these days. Um, I saw this uh, this movie, um, Only the Brave, where it's about um, the uh, Hotshot crew, um, which got uh, nineteen of the twenty, which got burned in the Yarnell Hill fire in, I think twenty thirteen it was in the United States, and um, I, I, I love the movie uh, for for many reasons, and I will do a talk about it. But uh, I listened to this, and then I listened to more videos from firemen and so on. I kind of got sucked in into that whole topic, and you know what's you know how. How's that being done? I was just curious. And repeatedly, um, uh, you know, there are these briefing videos being done after such incidents happens and not of course not only if you know there are fatalities but you know about most fires there are these videos where the uh, involved uh, firemen and uh, the, they are there and they're reflecting about the process what did happen why did it happen and uh, what, what went wrong what, what went right how was communication and all this and I was like my god this is so admirable to put yourself out there um people got hurt to you know a larger or lesser degree or there are maybe even fatalities and then you have to reflect about you know honestly what what was my role in that this is a big deal this is a big big deal and that's not happening in healthcare in general like a lot <laughs> I mean the whole critical incidents management stuff is um you know that has started to happen in healthcare in general very late compared to um the aviation industry there you got your checklists you know or even or, or these these firefighters you know I was like wow this is admirable we need that ethos and I remember, you know, when, uh, when I was uh, Dr. Charlotte de Baltrush, you know, my main mentor and teacher. Um, in, the, in one of the NGOs I founded uh, with the name uh, Healing Souls International, which I founded with her. Um, we went to seminars together and uh, I organized and sometimes we held it together. And uh, of course, she had a very active role in the seminars because, you know, she was... The, uh, the, authority, uh, there and, uh, the the authority there and had had the experience and then on the way back I remember we were sitting in the car and I was driving and and she would you know reflect she would reflect on it uh, you know this uh, this and that and that uh, you think I should mm, maybe have intervened a little bit more this way or that way. And this honest reflection about what just happened, I, 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 I always had that attitude. I, I, I felt the, the, the first do no harm, the primum non nocere. It involves that sometimes you have to say, okay, I, I made a mistake, you know, I fucked up. Now, how can we change that, and how can we, and yeah, is that embarrassing to a certain degree? I mean, for me, it stopped being embarrassing once I dropped this expectation towards myself that I have to always do well. Um, I failed in a lot of situations. Even now when I develop the trainings, I, I think back to to interventions I did years ago or even now when I'm like, huh, you know that was really, pff, that was really fucked up. Sorry, my French. Um, no, that wasn't right, or I didn't see this, or I couldn't that. And I mean, I think we can all agree that this is how you grow. This is how you move forward. I mean, fortunately, I do see retrospectively that the uh, the the mistakes are getting less frequent with experience. Yes, they do. And they should. I mean, if you keep on doing the same mistakes or the the same frequency of of mistakes, you should really ask yourself, you know, what is wrong with your process? You know, there's something (laughs) obviously broken. But um, yeah, this this is how you grow. And what I was saying earlier is that this this disconnect of the method from the person that 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 applies to to what I'm teaching and it, it applied to the firefighters too you know there are certain protocols and standards and this and this, but then it comes down to mm, have these protocols which people agreed to have they been adhered to or was you know there a diversion or was there distraction or chaos for certain reasons um And why and how and how can we avoid that in the future? It's similar here. And I do think at large, um, emotional work and psychology are so far away from that, sadly. Because there is not even the attitude that we want to get something done. When I say we, I don't include myself, like in general. It's just, okay, we're doing it because we have to do it, but people have so low expectations when it comes to emotional work and psychologists. The the expectations are so low, and I'm telling you something. um, That is kind of wanted. Because if you really wanted to change that, there would be ways. You could put yourself out there. Like, why are there so few, and here I'm challenging everybody, why are there so few um, therapists, counselors, whatever, you know, these people working with emotions and so few show what they're doing? Is it just because of privacy? You know, oh, it's so sensitive, what are we working with? Yeah, I get it. Of course, you cannot put everything on youtube or wherever in public and be like you know here of course not but there is so little actual work visible that oh of course people are like well we don't know what we can expect you know yeah but then there is research and this and this and this and then you create a body of research which um you know Anybody who has some insight in the scientific method and research knows that, yes, of course, it's the best we got. I get it, but it produces so much of bias still, so much of diversion, distraction and mess that even though it's the best we got i'm not saying let's discard the scientific method and you know let's just believe everybody who puts up a sign that they're helping other people and of course not but sometimes you just want to see you know like if you buy a car you do not want to see some research that you know uh, you would you would drive probably calmer with a with a more calm feeling if you know that the you know the 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 car has its stickers of safety it has been checked and you know been reviewed and all that you want that to be in place but you also want to just you know see what happens you want to experience it you want to see and you want to you you want to see what you're buying especially and when it comes to emotional work you know somebody has to do it with you so it's a service so it is a product if if you like that thought or not you know i mean uh people like me and everybody else you know we, we we have to make a living too um so it is a service where there will be money exchanged be it you paying yourself or your insurance paying for you, whatever it might be. In the end, somebody has to pay for it. So there is a transaction. So, But what is my part in that transaction? What am I offering you? So what the whole coaching, emotional work, personality development, however you want to summarize all this kind of stuff, um, has developed into is buzzwords, slogans, um, slick marketing if you can and that's basically all that should sell. Show me what you're actually doing and show in real time. Just don't show me like the cut, you know, uh, the cut together clips of you know somebody breaking down in tears and everybody's hugging each other and ever said, "Oh my god," I, you know, it totally changed me. Come on, uh, that distracts. That. Not distracts, it. It changes our perception or not even this what do i want to say it confuses our perception of how an actual emotional process goes and this is why i did the uncut uh, demonstrations i mean not everything i will put online will be uncut uh for diversity of reasons but you have to have some uncut stuff to get a real impression of okay this is how that you know how it fits together. This is how human nature works. Because you discover things about how human nature works if you if you watch the demonstrations. There are some surprises waiting beyond just the chit chat and the talk and the uh, cognitive behavioral. I mean, you, you know, some things need to be cognitive behavioral, but the actual emotional work you will never get done cognitive behavioral. Never. It's just no way. Um, CBT has its place in the mix it can do some things quite well but it's very very limited it's a very specific tool and it's a good tool in the hands of everybody who has more tools it's like you know if you go to a construction site and you only have a hammer you know you would be like "Mm, okay yeah well I mean I have a hammer that's good I can you know put in some nails but what about the screws What am I going to do with them? Going to hammer them in? Yeah, and this is what people then do. They use that one tool they got for everything, you know. So, coming back to the actual hook of um, today's talk. The amount of, you know, the Beirut explosions, of course. The The sheer quantity of emotional pain that was created during this event humbles me, humbles me again. It is uh, that I say we urgently need scalable methods. And uh, again, it shouldn't be me, but maybe in the end it has to be me. I mean, if not me, who is doing it? I don't see it happening. So I'll keep on working. And um, whenever such, you know, such an event happens and but with such an event, I mean, a large scale um, suffering, which is, of course, not new. I mean, you didn't have to wait for the Beirut explosions for that. I mean, you have that. I always, I always have this moment when the news comes. I'm like, oh, that would be the moment or at least when the the first wave of needs of of immediate physical needs has been taken care of then that transition to taking care of the emotional needs to avoid uh, the post-traumatic effects of an event or to at least alleviate and reduce those effects um i'm like okay that would be the moment and then i feel okay i'm Again, I'm too late, you know. But sadly, we know that, um, well, it will have to be in time for the next one. And also, sadly, the trauma doesn't go anywhere. Sadly, the trauma is sitting there. It's waiting uh, to be looked at, to be worked with to be taken care of to be integrated it doesn't go anywhere it really doesn't Um, so there's always this sense of urgency and then of course I have to balance it with uh, responsibilities and uh, and see how quickly I can get this done so this is so it was another reminder for me to you know, another moment of urgency and another, okay, but it needs to be done well, you know. Uh, I cannot just put out stuff hot, very half-baked and be like, you know, here you go and now <laughs> whatever happens. Um, well, I think uh, that is it for my side for today. Um, I did not read these stories of these uh, these uh, survivors, witnesses. Because I know, you know. It doesn't need telling the story to know their pain. It really doesn't. It's shameful if we say, well, only because I heard the story, I knew how you were feeling. You realize how 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 low that is that somebody has to actually tell you how they you know what they went through, even if it's like obvious I mean yeah <laughs> that brings something else in mind I Today I was um, Uh, training in anesthesiologist and medical terminology you know because this is my my project which currently uh you know is the breadwinner uh in emotion coaching is uh you know uh, i'm running uh germany's largest uh platform online platform for Uh, international doctors who come to Germany to, you know, prepare for their exams there. And I I train um, an anesthesiologist uh, from uh, Ukraine who is uh, uh, having one-on-ones with me, and uh, she's already on the job, but she still has some, you know, uh, exams in front of her, and she wants to improve her language. And uh, apart from the language now, today we had the terminology and so on. We had um, the conversation. She she brought a thing up, and she, she told me that story that um she had an, an old gentleman in as a patient, and she should um explain uh the anesthesia uh, the procedure to him you know to get the informed consent and and the man brought up that his wife died recently, may it be a year ago or two and um and he kept on talking about her and uh of course my my trainee tried to get her job done also you know there are a few questions you have to ask and um time is of course limited and so on and she kept on saying to me like you know what can I say to to in such a situation and her main intention was I mean you know she she being very empathetic and and, and very 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 adequate of course she wanted to kind of a like the the sweet spot you know how can I be be kind and friendly and respectful, but still get, you know, my work done. Like, what can I say to, hmm? don't want to cut the man short. But, you know, I have to also get back to him. And uh, I, I think I said something that surprised her. I mean, um, I said, next time this happens, next time this happens, ask him if he has a picture of his wife. Um, and of course, it's not only if he has it, if, you know, if he wants to show that. If he has a, or some other memory of her, like which he wants to, you know, show you. Because this man, you know, he very obviously was not heard with this, what happened to him. So he kept on telling and telling in details. And it was like whenever she, this is how she told, who told it to me, whenever she asked a question, he kind of diverted (laughs) and came back to talking about about his uh, his, uh, wife uh, who passed away. And I said, ask him for this. Because really seeing a person in their pain for a moment makes a lot of talk unnecessary and of course you could say i mean i, I said to her you, you you have to sense the situation but you could say well um okay you're talking a lot about uh, about your wife uh, that must of course have been very very difficult for you and still is i'm sure um, i don't know do you have a picture of her and he might just you know go to his uh what does he probably have some you know um some purse or you know how do you call that um uh um you know where you have the 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 money in and you you know often people have pictures of their loved ones in there and you know you might just have it somewhere or nowadays we have that in the in the mobile phone cases and uh Older gentlemen in Germany, if they have a mobile phone, then they usually have, you know, leather uh, cases for the phone uh, in case it drops. So there's some, you know, space to put a picture. You know, he'll have something. And then I, I said to her, then you can have a quiet look at the picture and really look at it. And then Really speak from your heart, just say what you feel. It could be something like Hmm, she has a very friendly face. Yeah. Or she well, oh, she seems very kind. You know, of course you say something nice. I mean uh, nice in the sense of, you know, please don't be stupid, yeah. <laughs> um and then stop talking. Let it just sit there. Of course, very likely the, 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 the this gentleman would have said something, he probably would have you know cried a bit, or at least been close to it. But then but then he would have been seen. Then he would have been completely seen in this moment. And I am sure that he then would not have felt the need anymore to bring the topic up and up again. And something similar happens when you react to somebody's story in this in the way of, I know. I know. I get it. That was absolutely terrible. You don't have to say more. I get it already so many stories are being told because then people are not being seen and with with being seen what do i mean i mean another human being articulating and recognizing that we are hurt i see that that this is the most powerful message to to, to, to have and then all the talk becomes less important and why when when I work uh, 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 are those with whom I work so so fine with not having told their whole story because they what they got from me is that they felt very intensely and very directly and in a very detailed way that I get how they felt. So our words, are just the vessel, but the contents is the emotion. Our words are just the vessel, the contents is the emotion. And if you have the contents, maybe the the vessel could have been very thin and very, it didn't have to be, have very very thick walls which take a long time to explain. There is no need to explain for, you know, all these faces, I'm scrolling the website now, like the page uh, which I'm talking about I see these faces and do I need to there's one older gentleman uh, at the very bottom, his name is Omar Nazar. Uh, construction worker, 43, and he says in the end, I've gone through the war and nothing like this happened it's something strange and horrifying um, you, you look at the face of this man and you know you know, and you admire the resilience. Uh, I do. Uh, the young people who, uh, there's a young woman, Miriam Shami, 27 Dance teacher, fashion designer. For sure, she. Um, uh, in the current, uh, you know, situ- in the situation in, in, in Lebanon, which is, has been uh, economically so, so difficult, you know, with this profession and these aspirations, is struggling a lot. I mean, do I need to know her biography to know that? No, there are all these struggles. Still, she decided to put on a smile for the pictures, for the picture. I mean, her eyes are not smiling. But um, yeah, the resilience—it's—it's it's, it's admirable. There's nothing more respectful towards another human being that you say, "I see how you feel. I acknowledge. I get it." And there is little you have to explain, and little you have to justify. You can just be. That is all right. No matter if your emotion is socially acceptable or not, or whatever. It is. It's all right. And I'm still here. So my anesthesiologist trainee, you know, if she would say, "Okay, you're not a burden by, you know, indirectly um, between the lines, between the lines, um, when she would ask for the picture, she would give the men the signal. You're not burdening me with your pain. It's all right. It's your pain. I don't feel your pain, but I get that you are in pain and I acknowledge that and I'm human too so I would feel the same if I, or similar if I would be in your situation you know this clear separation of it is not my pain she she had a suggestion she asked me mm, should I say mm, I'm sorry for your loss and something like that and I'm saying it is not about you when we say I am sorry for you first of all there's this whole issue with Uh, You know, should we be sorry for people? Should we pity people? Is saying, I'm sorry, pitying. And this is being perceived differently. You know, some people feel pitied. Other people say, no, that's like fine and adequate. And I didn't feel pitied. I felt you're, you know, you're, you're empathizing with me. Okay, so let's not split hairs here. But the point is, it is really not about you. The message is, I can see that was and still is very difficult for you. This is the baseline. I mean, find your own words for it. But there is some simple truth in this phrase. And I've used this phrase many times. And let me also be honest with you. It never felt like so intuitively right. Especially the first times. It felt strange. It felt alien. It felt like, okay, it must have been very difficult for you. I, it feels. Uh, I I get when people are not very excited about this sentence. I think this is what I'm trying to tell you. I get it. I get it that not everybody's jumping off their sh- chairs and saying, "Oh, this is genius." Uh, you no, know, I know that you want to dispute this. I know that you intuitively want to say other things. But those are impulses where I'm. I, I I'm I'm pledging don't just don't these natural impulses which have been learned and trained and you have been conditioned into this usually does no not much good it really doesn't and i've done it the other way too oh my god have i have i been saying stupid stuff in in important situations when i just was acting out of my gut feeling and i was empathetic my whole life extremely empathetic So it's not about this. It's not about, "Mm, are you empathetic or not? It is about, do you combine the empathy that you have with some skill? And sometimes skill means to do things a little different than you would if you would just act out of your gut feeling. That doesn't make you skilled, just acting out of your gut feeling. It really, really doesn't. And I've been there, you know, being uneducated, and empathetic. Oh my God, have I been there? Um, can give you twenty examples right from the top of my head. This is really not the point. The point is mm, trying to make that that a uh, transition to someone who has a certain kind of a skill, and then when you see that it works, you start to trust the method. And the point is not so much to explain why it works. I mean, there there are ways to explain it. I mean, I, I'm doing this the whole time. I'm explaining to you why it works, but it works in such a human way that you do not need to make a study and a statistics. You just see it immediately. So, and then in that conversation... The, the, the with, uh, you know, my anesthesiologist and uh, this old gentleman, I'm sure he would get into emotion. And I said, okay, you know, physical touch. I mean, she's from Ukraine, as I mentioned. And she said, you know, mm, I don't want to say something silly because my language, of course, is not perfect. So I do not want to come across in a way or, you know, hurt somebody. So I'm saying what you cannot say with words yet, you can say with your face and with your attitude and also with physical touch putting a hand on a hand putting a hand on a shoulder when you feel it is adequate and when you feel it's accepted that might mean the world and i was asking her aren't you when you're uh, doing uh, an anesthesia and the patient is still you know awake and they're lying there and you're at the at the at the head end uh, um, of the mm, uh, where the person is lying and aren't you sometimes putting your hand on their shoulder when they're very afraid? And she said, yeah, of course I do that. And I'm like, yes, please do that very consciously, consciously. It is important that we that we touch consciously again. So much touch is being done quickly, uh, carelessly, and touch has been devalued in so many ways and perverted in so many ways that it is just tragic. Touch touch can be the most terrible thing in the world and it can be the most beautiful thing in the world and and, and just the most adequate thing. And so with that attitude that she had, of course, I entrust her that she finds. And I encouraged her that. And that might be the moment where you, you know, if you feel it's necessary. And that might give more to this man then endless conversations about what happened. And then you have also the... The, the, After this, man has been seen by you for these moments. And if you break it down, how long does all this take? Two minutes? Three? She told me the whole conversation took 40 minutes, of course, including the... Um, uh, the, the, the actual content of the conversation, uh, the, the, the um, uh, informing the patient about the procedure. But still, I would estimate at least double the time, you know, 20 minutes probably she um, needed for this other part of the conversation. I promise you, and I promised her, it will be shorter. It will be shorter. And I'm not saying that's the ultimate goal, but it's just that's a side effect you'd be surprised how efficient you can be, how effective you can be. And you come out of this conversation in a fulfilled way. So my end point was, you know, of course you don't stay there. You then say, thank you for telling me this, um, but please excuse me that I have to move on also now with these questions. Would you allow me that we move on with this? Because of course I also have to see other patients now. Is that all right? And I'm telling you, if this patient is not just, you know, some, uh, you know, of course there are there are inadequate people who who, who cannot get enough, and um, uh, it's not nice to talk to them, and you know, of course, then you wouldn't do this. But uh, and then she said, no, 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 it was really a nice old man, and you know, he talked about his wife, and you know, da, da, da. And this is why she cared about this, and, uh, and he would then. Be focused. I promise you that. Yeah, I bet on this. And I still do. And uh, I'm curious uh, to see what happens when she comes back because she said she's going to try this out (laughs) with other patients. Because, you know, like this catastrophe there in Beirut, um, unfortunately, the next one will come. And, um, which is, of course, uh, terrible, but it's... um, it's our nature that pain will keep on happening, pain will keep on coming. Uh, we need strategies to effectively do something. That is the end of the helplessness. Remember the helplessness that I described—the the helplessness when you know people listen to a story and um, and they're like, "My God, what can I do?" I mean, I can try to help. Oh, and usually this is people you know, want to do th- things and sometimes you have to do things you know um but often when it's just a, you know really just about the emotional pain it it, it it I think this is the worst for most people if you cannot really do something when you can just when you can just be there and um, this is something I learned in in hospice care there it is not any more about curing a condition Then it is about making the most of life. And that, that applies not only to palliative or hospice care when you know that the, the end of life is definitely physically near, palpable, It applies to, to every moment in life simply because you, you never know what's going to happen next. You really, truly never know.